if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Now, Catholic priests are unique or special in several ways. First of all, there aren't actually that many of them. In the United States, a, a country of over 330 million, there are only about 35,000 or so priests, or one for every 10,000 Americans. But that includes retired priests, as well as those out of the public eye, like in monasteries or working as college professors, things like that. So, the likelihood of an average American meeting or having any significant interaction with a Catholic priest is, unfortunately, pretty rare. In fact, the only Catholic priests that many Americans will ever see are just characters in movies. So, Hollywood writers get to define the priesthood in the popular imagination. Or on the news when some priest is involved in a scandal or a crime. And so that leads to all sorts of misunderstandings and mythologies about the Catholic priesthood. So, I thought we'd try to break down that wall and let our listeners learn more about our priests. So, in the months ahead, we're going to have some periodic episodes exploring just who Catholic priests are, where they come from, how they're trained or educated, and meet some to hear from them just what the priesthood is really all about. Now, to kick this journey off, I couldn't think of anyone better than the man responsible for training many Catholic priests and recommending which candidates will be ordained or not. In fact, as he'll explain in this conversation, priests aren't really trained as much as they are formed. Father John Karchi is the rector-president of Mundelein Seminary and the University of St. Mary of the Lake outside of Chicago, Illinois. He was, and still is, a professor of biblical studies, but he assumed leadership of the seminary when the previous president, Father Robert Barron, left to become the famous Bishop Barron. Now, Father Karchi and I had an interesting conversation about what a Catholic priest is, how Catholic priests are formed in the seminary, and about what qualifies, or sometimes disqualifies, men to advance to ordination. Take a listen. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, send me an email. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com So welcome, Father John Karchi, who is the Rector President of Mundelein Seminary, and we're very grateful that you could take the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's a real pleasure and privilege to join you. 
So, Father, let's just dive right into this. A lot of our listeners are evangelicals or evangelical Protestants, and they, you know, they're familiar with sort of a model of ministry. You know, they have pastors, ministers, and they've got a sense for, because they've gotten to know them, what they're trained in, what happens in their seminaries. Uh, But the Catholic priesthood is an office or a role that's not exactly equivalent to the perhaps Protestant ministers or pastors or evangelicals that they're familiar with. What exactly is the Catholic priesthood and how does it differ from those Protestant or evangelical men that they might be familiar with? Well, it's certainly, you know, similar uh, in a lot of the ways in terms of the public ministry. Uh, So, you know, pastoral ministry that might mean counseling, uh, helping prepare uh, couples for marriage or baptism, and then actually witnessing the marriages or performing the baptisms. Um, But certainly there's a difference uh, in the sense of really understanding the the Catholic priest is acting, uh, the Latin term is in persona Christi, you know, in the person of Jesus Christ um, with a sacramental uh, heritage uh, going back to, uh, we would say, uh, from the hands of Jesus to St. Peter, and then subsequently through a bishop down through the ages and every Catholic priest being ordained uh, by a bishop, you know, in line uh, with a prior bishop ordained him going back to, again, St. Peter. Um, and I think the, the primary difference, though, between uh, the Catholic Church and uh, the Protestant denominations would be found in the sacramental uh, nature uh, of those uh, of the churches. Uh, and so the seven sacraments uh, being so central to the Catholic Church um, and really understanding uh, you know, a, a change, an ontological change, uh, a change in, in being uh, or substance that is affected by the Holy Spirit in those sacraments. So a, a Catholic priest, for example, is, um, you know, undergoes a, a fundamental change by virtue of his ordination as he then acts in the person of Jesus Christ. The bread and the wine uh, in the Catholic Eucharistic celebration undergoes a substantial change into the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not simply a symbol or uh, a reenactment of the Last Supper uh, as Eucharistic meal, you know, is often understood in many of the Protestant denominations. So it's not a a unique presence of Jesus Christ per se, uh, but it's a unique understanding of a literal change in the person of the priest, in you know, the person of the the bread and wine uh, at the altar in the Eucharistic celebration, um, uh, an evocation of the Holy Spirit uh, in a particularly uh, efficacious way in all of the sacraments. And part of that, you know, in the Catholic Church, obviously, that's a, a major difference with many of the Protestant denominations, uh, is the practice of celibacy. Um, and that is a, a discipline, not discipline in the sense of, uh, you know, punishment, but in the sense of practice so that Catholic priests uh, are not married. Uh, and Part of that is certainly to attain a greater availability for ministry to all the people that they serve, but that's not the primary reason. Sometimes that's misunderstood. It really is the sense of a whole giving um, of the priest to 
uh, to a sacramental um, a sacramental relationship with the wider church. And so there's a, an actual grounding of the priest's identity in a sort of spousal relationship, not exclusively with any one person, um, but with the Church of Jesus Christ. And then practically what that looks like um, is, you know, certainly ministry uh, in a pastoral capacity with many people, uh, with the people of his congregation. And there's a lot of overlap or similarity there with what any Protestant minister would be doing. Um, but there's not an exclusive relationship the way, say, a married Protestant minister would have uh, to his or her spouse. Um, at the end of the day, you know, there's no exclusivity there for the Catholic priest in a particular family or with a particular person. Um, there's an intimacy and a depth um, and a connection of relationship, but that's with the wider church. It's not simply with a particular person or a particular family. Um, so obviously it's a very broad question in terms of what is the Catholic priesthood, but uh, I'd say those are some of the um, you know, more obvious distinctions that would be noticed by someone just interacting with a Protestant uh, minister or a Catholic priest. How interesting. You know, as you talk about that ontological change, that change in the nature of the person, when I graduated from a Calvinist Reformed seminary and was ordained, our understanding was that we were, it was like being sworn into an office, like like uh, mm-hmm. taking an oath as a soldier or as a police officer or the mayor of the town or whatever. It was an office we were stepping into and we were trained functionally to exercise that office. But but what you're describing is a change in the person and a change in their nature. And so the question, I guess, that I would have is, how does the seminary prepare men for that ontological change? It's more than just vocational training, right? Or, I mean, in the sense of, you know, functional vocational training. That's right. Uh, and that's, that's an excellent question uh, because the function is certainly important. And, you know, the function of sacrifice, sacrificing on behalf of the people, governance, um, that's definitely a part of it, but it grows out of the identity. And I think that's the the best way to talk about it. So in seminary, you know, yes, there is a certain degree of professional training of, you know, how tasks are performed and so forth. But the really key element of seminary um, is helping to prepare a man for a change in his very identity. Um, And that can sound, you know, abstract, but Practically what that means is through prayer, um, through spiritual direction, uh, through really interaction with, you know, other priests as well as the laity in the church. So this isn't only something that the seminarian gains um, through priest mentors, but it's also through uh, the parishioners and the people that will ultimately be called to serve and and minister beside uh, in parishes. Uh, But it's a... You know, it's a shifting of mind and heart, just if I can put it that way. Um, not identically, but there are certain parallels with, say, what happens uh, as one is preparing for marriage. Um, you know, that there's a growing in identity. So a learning to be vulnerable, a self-sacrificial love, you know, as Christ calls us to. So we're all called to, you know, love one another as he loved us in that self-sacrificial way. But obviously what that looks like in uh, a married man's preparation for that, that, you know, that exclusive relationship, uh, 
first and foremost with his spouse. Um, well, there's a parallel there as the seminarian is preparing himself for that self-sacrificial love um, to the you know, wider church. Um, so that on the moment of ordination, just as on the, the wedding day for a married man, that change in being, right, which is basically what ontological change means, um, it is received. It's not something that the seminarian just decides, okay, I've prepared, now I'm ready, I'm going to do this. Uh, it's totally a preparation for reception, um, that the man is received by the church, by his bishop, but ultimately that means by Christ, right? The, the, the church there is the representation of the body of Christ um, here on earth. Uh, and so it's that act of total reception um, that affects the change in the man. It's not something that, you know, he's prepared for and therefore, you know, he passes his test. Or right, like right. Well, that goes to the verb, right? I mean, we were... We were educated, we were trained, we talked about being prepared, but you use the verb formed or formation, mm -hmm. right, in the seminary, because yeah. it's the formation of the person into this, this new identity. So how does that work? How does the seminary form priests beyond just the obvious educating and training and the professional skills? Exactly. And that education and training is subsumed into that broader sense of formation. And so sometimes even within the Catholic world, you know, people will create a, a false dichotomy there between, well, okay, this is, you're being educated in the classroom and then you're being formed, whatever that means, you know, uh, in the chapel or outside. And I always stress uh, to our faculty and to the seminarians and remind myself that it's all formation. Right. Uh, and my model, so I, I teach scripture. I mean, I've been, I'm in my eighth year now as rector, but I'm a diocesan Catholic priest for the Archdiocese of Chicago. And I was teaching scripture at the seminary uh, before I was appointed rector. Um, so that's part of my formal training. And I really draw this idea of formation, formation right out of the New Testament, because for me, Jesus gives us the perfect model of what this looks like. Um, an accompaniment, I would say, is the key concept there of what separates formation from simply professional training. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, think about Jesus and the disciples. Uh, it starts with a call, right? He calls them. That's what vocare means, to call vocation. Um, it's not, I've decided to take on this life. It, I've decided to respond to a call. Uh, and so then there's that growing intimacy uh, and by that, I mean, it's a growing in intellectual knowledge because Jesus does a lot of teaching. He does a lot of preaching. Um, they witness that they're right there with him. And so he's teaching them as he's interacting with the people of, of Galilee and, and Judea. And, and I've got to believe, you know, not every word is recorded in the Gospels, but there was teaching that was going on uh, all the time. Um, but then he's also sending them out on mission. Sometimes he sends them out, you know, uh, on their own. I mean, in pairs, yes, but he's not holding their hand. You know, he's sending them out. Other times they're walking along right alongside him um, and they're witnessing, you know, they're seeing the witness that he's giving uh, and they're growing in that just with Jesus, but amongst themselves. So when the moment, you know, ultimately of the ascension comes and, and he departs and sends the Holy Spirit, now they are this formed, okay, this formed body. Um, 
not just as individuals, but as part of, you know, a community that, you know, sort of radiates out. So you, you have the, the 12 disciples, you know, and Mary in this, you know, this, this inner circle. And then there's the wider group of disciples. And then there's all those that they're interacting with St. Paul going throughout the Mediterranean world. So the formation is a formation of intellect. It's a formation of heart. Um, it's a formation in their humanity. And by that, I mean what we might traditionally call pastoral skills. You know, how do you interact with people um, to help bring them closer to the Lord? And think about the evolution you see in Peter. Uh, and I think for me, Peter is the, the great, you know, poster child for what formation, you know, should look like. Um, he's impetuous. That's where we get the word from uh, in the sense of, you know, he speaks off the cuff. Uh, initially, and you, you see that in his attitude so much so that he'll even speak up and rebuke Jesus at times. But there's a lot of maturation and growth by the time you get to, um, say, after the resurrection, the famous scene with Jesus and Peter on the beach, Peter, do you love me? I mean, there's already a softening of Peter's heart. And then when you move ahead to read, say, uh, the letters of Peter, you know, in the the later part of the New Testament, um, you really see a, a growth and a development and a maturing in the man. Um, and that's partly, yes, his human growth as we mature, you know, hopefully we grow in wisdom, but that's also the result of his growth, his relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. So that's what it looks like, you know, in, in the, the biblical context. So we try to recapture that, you know, is there learning, classroom learning? Absolutely. But the teachers, um, most of them live with the men. So the, the priest professors, they live with the seminarians. You know, it's in the same residence building. Um, so that accompaniment, that modeling goes way beyond just what happens, you know, in the classroom, whether it's through lecture or case studies or what have you. Um, and then as the seminarians are not only encountering the classroom, but we send them out. They go out into parishes. You know, they go out and to do, uh, to do works, uh, corporal works of mercy, and, and not just doing works for others, but learning from, you know, parishioners, learning from Catholics and non-Catholics, you know, what it means to uh, help bring others to Christ in the world and to experience Christ's mm. presence, you know, being ministered to them. Mm. Um, and then they come back and they talk about it. So that's what formation looks like for us. Wow. But just to talk about that classroom learning part a little bit, and you mentioned that, you know, you, you taught scripture, you know, I probably I'm assuming that the curriculum reflects the priorities for the priesthood and the Catholic church for us in a reformed seminary, the, our emphasis was that we were to be preachers and teachers and to some degree uh, evangelists. So our classroom learning was, you know, 80%, you know, uh, biblical, right? It was mm -hmm. Greek and Hebrew and Greek and Hebrew and Greek and Hebrew and Greek and Hebrew. We had almost no courses in sacramental theology. We didn't have a sacramental theology. So when you look at how you sort of distribute the classroom time and where the education for the priests is, where are the emphases in the, the curriculum? Excellent question. And you've already delineated a large number of them. Um, so, and, and I'll be honest, I'm envious of, you know, uh, some of my Protestant uh, seminarian friends, because obviously scripture is my heart and you can never do too much scripture in my mind right. in, in seminary, but. Well, uh, I, I'll just say, father, you know, like 
that's the one great thing that I got out of my seminary experience. I went to a, you know, my, my Old Testament professor had been the general editor of the NIV study Bible. And we were just, oh my goodness, okay. we had this immersion, you know, it was two years of Greek before we got to seminary and then three years of Greek mm. there and, you know, Hebrew. And so we had this sure. such an immersion in uh, the original languages and New Testament, Old Testament. That was, that was largely seen as our function, um, our purpose. Mm-hmm. But they're left out huge gaps, right? So we got out in ministry right, right. And, and, you know, my journey to Catholicism was that I got out and I realized that I had been extremely well-trained and I'm grateful for the biblical education, but it left so many holes in mm. the things that I felt that you needed to serve the church. So sure. just curious so, about sure. how you distribute the limit. I remember the president of our seminary uh, said to us once that if we... If he taught us everything that we needed to know, seminary would last 10 years. So they had to kind of, uh, you know, teach you the foundational things and then hope that you had a, a mindset of continuous learning once you got out. Exactly. Ongoing formation, you know, it's a lifetime uh, evocation. So in seminary and generally uh, for Catholic diocesan seminary, it's four to six years, um, depending on whether the the student has a background in philosophy or not, he may need to make up some of that. So scripture, you know, definitely there's a broad coverage of all the major areas uh, of the Bible, you know, in Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, Torah, uh, wisdom literature, uh, the historical books, uh, definitely working through the Gospels and the letters uh, in the New Testament. but you know, if you were going to just break it all down, that's probably about 50% of, uh, of the classroom time. Uh, then in, in the Catholic church, um, you know, we're really talking about revelation and, you know, revelation is advanced beyond just the biblical text. uh, You know, we would say, um, it's advanced through scripture and something called tradition. And by tradition, we don't simply mean, you know, what do the stained glass windows look like or, right. or what kind of hymns are sung. Uh, and so the distinction is often made tradition with a capital T or a little t. Um, but tradition with a capital T, you know, this is the development of doctrine, which uh, is an absolutely crucial means by which revelation is advanced. It's not that God changes over time, obviously, but it's our capacity to understand and uh, receive what that relationship looks like. Um, so think about the Hebrew Bible. I mean, you certainly have uh, a difference in the way the Israelites are interacting with God uh, at the time of Moses and Joshua, you know, versus what we're seeing in the time of the Maccabees, for example. Um, you know, it's just, so God didn't change over that time, but it's, you know, as we advance in our capacity for understanding. So we would just say that that doesn't happen when, you know, the canon is finally set for the Christian Bible, um, that you have an ongoing understanding led by the Holy Spirit, right? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, you know, from Pentecost onwards. Um, So a great example of this would be uh, Trinitarian theology. I mean, you have a nascent understanding of the person of the Trinity in scripture, but you don't nearly have what you find in all its specificity, say in the Nicene Creed, which is coming out of the fourth century. Um, But that also doesn't mean that Catholic theologians or Christian theologians can just sort of wing it, you know, and well, this is what I think and this is what I think. So there's a lot of debate, argument, you know, discernment um, into terms of 
what the dogmatic statements, you know, ultimately are and become. But that's what we mean. There's nothing in right. in tradition that can contradict what you find in scripture, but there definitely is a development and a an ongoing, you know, specificity in how that theology is understood. So a big part of seminary is studying that subsequent theology um, that is grounded on uh, a firm basis of scripture. And then there's also the whole pastor and just, you know, uh, how do you celebrate the sacraments? But then, you know, family dynamic systems. um, And and there's where all the emphasis of, you know, modern, what we've learned about the human person um, and some counseling and, uh, and, uh, you know, psychological training, though, it's not as if we're trying to prepare them to be, professional counselors, there's, you know, that's another role, but they need to have some understanding of the basics of just how we interact with one another and our families and so forth as human beings. So as all of this is going on, there's discernment. And that's, I assume, going both ways, right? The seminarian is discerning whether or not this is right for him. And I assume that the seminary is engaged in some level of discernment as to whether the, the man is right for the priesthood. Talk a little bit about how that works and what the basis is. I mean, what are the qualities that you're looking for? And I mean, I hate to put it this way, but what are the qualities that you're sort of not looking for that you're trying to weed out? Absolutely important distinction that you make there, that the the discernment is a two-way street. And uh, a lot of times people, you know, mistakenly think of priesthood as, well, you know, it's one occupation among many, and maybe someone just decides this is what they want to do. a seminarian is called, right? A man is called to the priesthood, just as the disciples were called by Jesus. Um, of course, you know, the will has a part of it. You know, if a man long before he enters seminary has some sense that maybe this is what I'm drawn to. And so there, you know, there's a, uh, a consonance there. There's a desire in the man's heart. But at the end of the day, you know, it begins by him contacting the vocation, you know, director vocation office, every diocese has one. And that process of discernment begins well before the man might actually come to seminary. So the man through prayer, through conversation um, is growing in his sense of, is this truly what the Lord is calling me to? Is this where my heart is directed? But even before that, you know, Jesus says, it was not you who called me, I who called you, right? Famously in the gospel of John. Um, And that model is still carried out to this day. So as soon as a man, you know, contacts the diocesan offices and says, you know, I I think I have this calling potentially, um, then the diocese through accompaniment again, right? So it's not take this test or, you know, see if you have compatibility with the priesthood. Um, It's now we're going to accompany you. So you won't just be praying alone. You're going to be praying with us. And so that might be a discernment group of other men who are discerning this potential call. Um, It means growing in personal prayer life, uh, but that means in and with the church. So uh, the man is being um, observed, not just in the sense of a, a professional assessment, but observed in the sense of, you know, is he a man of community? Uh, does he seem to have an adequate you know, affect of maturity? Is his heart governed by uh, a charitable, does he have a charitable heart? Um, and these are all qualities that, you know, is being looked for as the man comes into seminary as well. So certainly there's a certain minimum, you know, intellectual capacity that's going to be required because a priest does have to do a fair amount of of writing and uh, and reading and understanding. So there's, there's just that 
you know, professional proficiency that you need to establish. So as a man goes through seminary, he attains a master's degree, a master's of divinity. Um, so the capacity for graduate level work. Um, but then more importantly than that, you see a man of prayer. Uh, because a priest, I mean, we're all called to be people of prayer, absolutely. Uh, but the priest is going to, and this is, you know, partly the fruit of of celibacy and the, the commitment that comes with that. So, you know, a man of daily prayer, a mature prayer, who can really grow in personal prayer and lead others in that process. That's something that we're looking for. Um, his human development, you know, does he have the disposition um, to patiently and generously, you know, lead others because a, a priest is a shepherd. Um, and sometimes that means, you know, leading from the front of the flock. And sometimes that means having the humility, you know, to lead from behind, to be a collaborator. Um, you know, is he, does he draw life from getting in and amongst the people? Uh, Pope Francis famously says, right, the priest should smell like a sheep. Um, and not everybody, you know, is, is wired that way or is drawn to that. Um, and so the years of seminary is partly, you know, helping the man discern and or the church to discern in their behalf. Uh, does this man have the right sort of disposition? Can he embrace celibacy as a choice and not simply a discipline that he's going to tolerate? Uh, you know, it's really important that by the time of ordination, uh, the celibacy is seen as a positive choice. That this is what the man is embracing in his way, as his way of living out, you know, an intimate, committed love, which looks very different than what that is for a married sure. man, um, obviously. So those are all qualities: the intellectual, the spiritual, and the human um, uh, development that the church is discerning. And so as the rector of the seminary, you know, I ultimately have the responsibility, but obviously I'm aided by my staff and a wonderful group. But before a man is ordained a deacon, and that's the first step before priesthood ordination, uh, I have to look his bishop in the eye effectively and say, yeah, to the best of our ability, you know, we've discerned that this man is ready. Um, So you say the qualities that, you know, you're also looking forward to, that he shouldn't have, right? And sometimes this is a, it definitely does happen. Men discern out of seminary. Seminary is a time of discernment. Uh, And it's a beautiful thing if a man discerns well and ultimately discerns, yes, I have not, I'm not being called to the priesthood. Uh, That's not a failure, you know, if that discernment has gone well. Uh, So it's things like a man discovering that in fact, no, he's not called to celibate, uh, a celibate life. Um, as he's discerned and prayed. Now everyone in seminary is living celibately. So it's not as if, um, you know, once you enter seminary, you've made this commitment to, while I'm discerning, I'm going to be discerning living a celibate life. So they're not dating, things like that. Um, But they may discern that ultimately that is not what they're being called to. They may discern, um, there's many different, um, I hesitate to use the word types, but I'm not quite sure what other word to use. There's, there's many different ways that priesthood can be lived out. So a diocesan priest and my seminary, Mundelein Seminary, all of our students are preparing to be diocesan priests. That means they'll be in parishes. They'll be out in the neighborhood. They'll be amongst people, you know, that full immersion. Uh, well, a man might discern, you know, ultimately that's not where his gifts are. He's not comfortable being in that public way. Well, there are other ways of exercising priesthood um, that are more um, 
sure. contemplative, you know, some may go into monasteries, some may ultimately be called to work in academia. Um, so there's that discernment that's going on. Is the man a man of prayer? Um, you know, yeah. and, and not everyone is just able to commit a huge, right. a significant part of their day to prayer. Yeah. Father, I hate to ask this, but um, it is inevitable. So every every training organization, whether it's medical schools or military academies or seminaries, is going to have some bad apples. Um, yep. And bad apples, although there are very few of them in the church, the, they do uh, a disproportionate amount of damage. So for the faithful who are listening to this, what is the seminary, could it or should it, or how does it deal with, in a sense, I hate to bring it up, but sort of ferreting out people who don't belong? If you could just address that, you know, because historically, apparently, uh, the quality control has not always been as good as it could have been at, at certain times and places. Right. And that is an absolutely critical, you know, role, and that's a responsibility uh, that sits on my shoulders and that, that probably weighs the heaviest of anything because, of course, the worst thing, you know, that any of us would want is that a man would go through, you know, get ordained, be a priest. Um, and we just, we just know, we know the horror stories um, that have ranged, you know, from, I mean, the abuse cases, uh, but also even for the ones who, you know, have not uh, committed that crime and that horror, that sin, um, just the way you know, they've dealt with it on behalf of others, you know, the, the shirking of responsibility or cover up and things like that. So before, I mean, I can say, you know, thankfully we've come a long way from where we were several decades ago, but it's still not foolproof. But before a man would even be accepted as a seminarian by a diocese, uh, he'll undergo uh, a battery of psychological testing. Um, and that's looking at everything from you know, his, uh, his human capacity, are there any underlying pathologies, potentially, uh, a full kind of workup of his uh, sexual history, um, what's his, uh, what have his experiences been, um, are there any abnormalities there, things that he's struggling with. Uh, and in some cases, those are serious enough that a man is simply not, not fit to move forward towards a priestly vocation. Uh, but in other cases where, you know, uh, now we're not talking here about some uh, past history of, you know, uh, sinful or criminal behavior. Right. I mean, I'm assuming there's thorough things. background checks. You don't, right. you know, exactly. you screen them before you right. even get there. Yeah. Sure. But an example might be, um, and, and a word that's often used is integration. So sexual integration. You know, did mm. the man understand himself well enough? Um, you know, so let's just say someone comes in and has had little or no dating experience. Um, well, a really important thing uh, for us to, to look at and try to assess is, you know, how does he interact with women in general? If he's going to be a priest in the church, that's going to be a huge part um, of what he's doing. And so uh, there's a whole psychological development, developmental element to that, uh, that if he hasn't had much experience, and I'm not only talking about dating experience, but just collaboration and men and women interact differently than men interact with other men. Um, and so uh, watching for that, you know, over time, does there seem to be a healthy growth uh, and mature way of, uh, of interaction in that sense? Right. Um, 
as the seminarians go out into parishes, obviously uh, there's a very close monitoring of, well, what does that interaction look like? They're working with uh, other adults. They may be working with children, you know, in the schools. Um, there's a whole series of protocols now that we follow, um, you know, that are mirrored in the just the professional world in general yeah. outside of church. Well, as near as um, I can tell, Father, you, you're you're doing a better job of it than the Protestant seminaries that I'm familiar with, because to the degree that which, that so many of them have become sort of commuter campuses, or you know, in many cases, married or unmarried. Um, seminarians, there's not much observation of the person. And, you know, I think the Catholic Church has taken uh, a lot of, you know, obviously visible media hits, but I can, I can tell you that there's just as many, um, for lack of a better word, bad apples that come through the Protestant seminaries, but they don't get the visibility. And so, you know, it's hard, right? You've got you've to figure that out. That's right. And, you know, for the, for the Catholic seminarians, they are fully residential. And so, yeah. as I said, the, the formators. But I would also say, I mean, those are the extreme cases. But yeah. Most of the bad apples, so to speak, and, and I'll just be honest, a part of my job is sitting down with the man and saying, you know, regardless of where you think you may be, we as the church have discerned, this is not really what you're being called to. Yeah. And yes, you're being dismissed from the seminary. But the more common thing is just go back to human formation. So a man that's maybe just intransigent in his capacity to collaborate. You know, he just doesn't see that as something that he can do. Um, you know, I'm the one calling the shots and that's the way it has to be. Uh, anger issues that haven't been dealt with adequately mm. uh, that maybe don't come up in the application process, but it's not until he's actually, you know, interacting with his brother seminarians, with the faculty here, and then out in his parish assignment. Um, well, that's unacceptable, right? Addictive personality issues, and you know, sure. I mean, we saw Those things can be dealt with, yeah. but seminary is not the place for therapy, right? Right. Well, let me let me ask you this: as we kind of near the end of our time, are, are there any myths that you think that are out there about the seminary or our priests that you'd like to dispel? You know, myths in the public imagination. Yeah, I'd say one, you know, myth um, that's there is that somehow, uh, you know, seminary is just this rarefied atmosphere where, um, (laughs) you know, it's pretty much predetermined. This guy's been called to be a priest and now he's going to come here. I mean, people come to seminary with all the the strengths and weaknesses that you find anywhere else in the population. Um, I think part of dispelling the myth isn't just saying, yeah, you know, we're all human and we, you know, we have some of the same uh, struggles as anybody else. Um, but then the flip side of that is it's an extraordinary privilege to take, you know, four, five, six years and really devote them 100% to that discernment process so that, you know, you don't, for most of the time, and again, nothing is foolproof, but, you know, people should be able to take a, a fair level of, of comfort and confidence in the fact that um, the sole focus of the time here is really, you know, to surface some of these things and then to to help the man, you know, receive the, the assistance. And that might be some level of counseling, you know, not many major counseling, then that wouldn't happen within the seminary. But um, so he's constantly looking at himself, growing in self-knowledge. Um, Another myth 
sometimes might be that uh, everything should happen simply within the seminary walls and that, you know, the seminary is like a, a priest factory and, you know, right. uh, you know, guys come in off the street and then priests go out. No, it, it, the seminary is part of the Catholic church, right? Mm. And, and that means that uh, the wider church is also an important partner in that formation process. And every time I get the chance to talk to, uh, you know, Catholics out in parishes, wherever, I always make a point of stressing, uh, you have a responsibility uh, to take a role in the formation of your future priests. Um, and sometimes that takes them aback, you know, well, wait a minute, you're the seminary, what are we? And, you know, then I can go from there and say, well, let me tell you, you know, here's ways to do it. Certainly to pray for the seminarians. But if you're a parish or if you have interaction with seminarians and at Mundelein, we insist that all the seminarians go out and they have parish assignments um, so that it's not just sort of icing on the cake and, oh, that, that's great that they're going to your parish, but you have a responsibility in, in a good way, in an ennobling way um, to help that man uh, grow in his own self-awareness and knowledge and help him understand the kind of priest that the church needs. Um, to be another set of eyes, you know, helping, you know, calling him to a higher level of responsibility and identity. Uh, and so I think the more we can do to help every, you know, Catholic in the church see that that's part of their role, um, the healthier our priesthood is going to be and the better served the, you know, the people of God are going to be. Well, what a great place to land. So, Father, how can we best encourage and support and pray for Mundelein and our seminaries and our seminarians. And I would say to just try and grow in familiarity of, you know, who's ever listening to this, your priest is formed, was formed at a particular seminary, seminarians for your diocese. It's amazing how many Catholics don't even know what seminary their diocese is using. Right. Uh, Chicago, and I talk to Chicago uh, Catholics who don't know about Mundelein Seminary. Wow. Um, and so, uh, you know, and part of that's on the seminary, but it's also, I think, as you're raising, if you're raising children in the faith or if you're a Catholic school or religious education, um, not just that, you know, we pray for vocations that's hugely important or, you know, once a year, maybe a seminary comes out and talks, but this should just be part of general Catholic education uh, that just as you learn about your parish to take some time to learn about the seminary, uh, you know, that your bishop is using. Um, and then you can, you know, everybody has a website these days, obviously learn about that seminary. Uh, if possible, make a field trip out there. I love it when, you know, school kids or groups from parishes come out here to Mundelein. Um, you know, we can show them the place. They get a chance to talk with some of the seminarians, priests, or the lay teachers who are here. Um, then when you're praying for them, you know, you're praying for a known entity, right? I right. mean, you, you have some sense of what's going on. I, I think sometimes seminary formation is one of the best kept secrets uh, in the Catholic church. And that's not a good thing. That's, that's a very bad thing. We need to grow in that familiarity. So I just hope anyone who's listening to this podcast, if they feel so moved, you know, and if they don't know what seminary there's, go on the website for your diocese. And there's always going to be a link for the seminarians or vocations. And once you learn what that seminary is, then go to the seminary website and, uh, just do what you can to try and develop a relationship. I guarantee you any rector at any seminary would be thrilled to get 
an inquiry like, hey, we'd like to learn a little more about the seminary. Um, you know, just because we are Catholics and we're being served by you and we want to help support you. But if we're going to take our responsibility of, of having a role in the formation of these guys, um, we need to know what you're doing and you need to know, frankly, what we're doing. That's wonderful. Well, we're going to be certainly doing that, Father. So thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your service to the church and thank you for your time today. Oh, absolutely, Greg. You can be sure of my prayers for you and all the people that you reach as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.